You know, I had a guy, honestly, the other day at work, uh, we had an argument. It was, it was getting very uh, combative because it's sales and it's, it's just, it's, sales sucks, to be honest with you. But it's about all I can do right now. And we had an argument and the guy actually spouted out and he said, he said, uh, get the fuck out of my office. You killed people. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I'm really interested in learning a lot today about the op- opioid crisis, what role you had to play in it, um, your life, uh, how you got into sales. So how do you introduce yourself when, when people ask you? Uh, I mean, you know, I introduced myself as a uh, person who is kind of a sales maniac, uh, you know, for the greater portion of my life, just super competitive, um, you know, grew up in a relatively normal home. I mean, my brother was a little volatile. He was uh, very bipolar and died a tragic uh, death at the age of 41. Um, But still, I had parents and they were home and raised me well. And I went to college, went to grad school and got a master's in social work, was a guidance counselor and a coach for a while. And uh, the money, you know, became an issue, meaning I needed more or or at least I wanted more and I thought I needed more. And uh, jumped into the world of pharmaceutical sales and um, just became extremely competitive. I was competitive as, you know, growing up as an athlete and so forth. Not a great athlete, but a high school ball player. And just always enjoyed winning. And then getting into pharmaceuticals and, you know, being ranked amongst your peers, it kind of rejuvenated that competitive spirit. Um, And to the point where, you know, over time, it certainly went too far. How does the competitive spirit work? Because you said you were a, a gym teacher. Uh, yeah, I started off as a part-time fitness teacher. That was my first job, uh, three classes a day while I was working on my master's. And then when I got my master's, I became a guidance counselor and uh, um, social worker. Yeah. Because if you're a, an athlete, um, a, you know, a career as a teacher and especially in sports is usually kind of, let's say, looked down upon in most North American society. So does that play a bit on your ego as you... You know, oh, kind yeah. of went, yeah. Oh yeah, my ego was my ego was killing me. But you know, ego is uh, is a huge detriment in general. You know, uh, having an ego, I think it was probably you know a huge component to my downfall. Um, but yeah, I worked at a high profile private school. Kids were super affluent, and you know, the parents had a ton of money, and the cars and and the dress that they wore, and you know, the the comments. I mean, the pivotal comment. Actually, it was I was uh, monitoring the carpool lane at the school, and this guy was in a Bentley convertible, uh, you know, taking uh, smoking a cigar. And we had a no smoking policy on campus. I went out there and politely asked him to put it out. Took another puff, you know, blew it in my face, and said, "Petty rules from petty people." And um, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, where I basically said, "I I, I was leaning this direction anyway, but." Uh, at that point, I just said, yeah, this is not going to be a long-term career for me. And my eyes and ears are wide open to, you know, where I could go from here. Were you, did you always have the salesperson bug? Because like, I think some people are born to do sales and some people just aren't. So how do you transition from social work school, a relatively like humble career, let's say, 
into sales, which is much more ego driven, much more numbers driven, much more money driven. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a house of sales. Um, My father was a career salesman and, um, you know, uh, spent the greater portion of his life in the car business. Started Started off, you know, selling cars at the bottom, worked his way up to general manager and made a good living, but he worked his tail off six days a week, long hours. My brother followed in his footsteps, same path, and actually became a GM partial owner. Um, so I sat at the dinner table every night hearing about deals that were being closed and so forth. Um, so I was surrounded by that. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I mean, I was always selling, you know, I was always selling me and always trying to get people to buy into my ideas and follow my lead. Um, you know, starting off in elementary and then middle, junior high, high school, college. I mean, um, I was never really much of a follower. You know, I was a leader and, um, you know, that, that, that behooved me uh, in many ways. But, you know, when you're a leader, if you're, if you're giving the wrong message, right, you're conveying the wrong message to people, then it could turn into a disaster. And so, um, you know, after having gone through what I went through, you know, at this point in my life, I still acknowledge the fact that, you know, I'm able to speak in a certain way where people seem to buy into what I'm what I'm selling and they want to follow. And so now I realize that I have to be more careful than ever to ensure that uh, the message I'm giving is a healthy message and that people uh, are going to they're going to move in a a progressional manner that's going to behoove them as well and not hurt them in the long run. Did you ever see your dad in action in like an actual sales scenario? Because some people get inspiration from their parents. And did you ever think, oh, wow, this is incredible. I wish I could do this. I wish I could make someone buy something. I mean, I saw my dad in action a million times. Yeah. My yeah. Dad always selling. My dad was, um, no one really knew who my dad was, uh, you know, unless you lived. Really? Him. Yeah. I mean, because he's a salesman. He was, he, he was at a show, right? Right. Um, you know, people used to call my dad giggles. And the fact of the matter is, is when he was in the house, the guy never smiled once. He was in his bed and he was watching TV or sports and he really wasn't that pleasant to be around. But when he when he had a salesman hat on and he was out and about in the public, he was a completely different character. Uh, and that resonated with me. But I sold cars in college. You know, my dad wanted me to work over the summer. So I sold I sold at the dealership where he and my brother worked uh, and, um, you know, being green. Uh, and not being able to necessarily close deals at the very beginning, oftentimes my brother more so than anyone would come in and actually close that deal for me and help put money in my pocket. So I got to see firsthand how this, you know, how it was kind of done. Interesting. So how did you transition from the career that you were doing to pharmaceutical sales specifically? Yeah, I mean, so I was talking with one of the parents and he uh, we, we had a good conversation. His child was in a lot of trouble all the time. So I was helping out tremendously and they were appreciative. And we just started talking personally on a personal level. And he said one day, you know, Alec, what do you see yourself doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm doing it. And he's like, nah, he's like, I don't see you doing this for the for your career. You know, you got there's more to you than this. I can see it. And I said, well, what do you see me doing? Like, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. I'm, I'm still in the, very much in the learning phase. Was he in sales and as well? He was, was he? a doctor. He was a doctor. Ah, a doctor. Oh, okay. Interesting. And he said he, he, he recommended pharmaceuticals. He says, I'm a, I'm a huge prescriber for one of Eli Lilly's products. Um, I'm sure if I recommended you, they would give you an interview. And I said, you get me an interview and I'm, I'll come charging through that door, you know, and it was kind of, you know, no holds barred from that move, that point moving forward. Um, I mean, you get the job and then you go to training and it's intense and it's a couple of months in Indianapolis. It's exams every day. You fail, you go home. 
um, and you're competing with the people in your class and you're trying to get what I remember they had something called the peer award. And, you know, I fought feverishly for that award. Uh, there was uh, initial training and then a three month training, uh, three month school. The first training, I didn't get it and I was devastated. So already I knew like how competitive I was at three month school. I did get it and was voted amongst my peers as uh, the number one guy in that in that training class. So, like I said, right from the beginning, um, I just couldn't stand not hearing my name called or, you know, when they put it up on the board, on the computer or whatnot, and they had 300 or a thousand people ranked. Honestly, if I was a number one, I look at number one, if I, my name wasn't there and I had to scroll, you know, I was not a good person to be around. I wasn't pleasant. And my wife already saw, started to see the, you know, inevitable change in me. Um, is there a little bit of Shakespearean foreshadowing with this doctor person? Because it sounds like, and I've seen the documentary Crime of the Century, uh, where you describe the typical four types of doctors, you know, the, the four different colors. And yep. we can talk about that a bit more, obviously, later. But it was this guy one of those doctors that you would eventually end up going after to sell them opioids? Um, I actually didn't go after him. Well, he, he wasn't, he wouldn't be a prescriber of opioids. You know, it's, he was a primary care physician, internal medicine. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of internists that do prescribe opioids and the, the pain specialist would say that's problem number one, right? That they shouldn't be prescribing, but they they have a license and they can, if they want, um, it's shunned upon now more than ever, right? Because they didn't have that additional training in pain management, um, but no, he, he wouldn't have fit the, the criteria. Uh, he was more of an analytical, you know, more science oriented, um, more of the type of guy that would tear apart a study and really look at the data. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned in the crime of the century, I believe, you know, I really went after the reds, the drivers. Yeah. The guys who were, uh, driven by money, you know, more so than anything else, kind of the what's in it for me, you know, the whiff them. And um, as soon as I came across a physician where they basically made it clear that if I didn't have something to offer them and uh, and better their current situation, there would be no need for me to visit that practice anymore. Is there a way to do this career path and still make a good amount of money without going into the shady world of, you know, it's super dangerous opioid dealing, I guess, is the question. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, Opioid is just one small portion of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, it, it's been kind of portrayed that I was like this master at selling opioids. You know, I sold long before I sold opioids. I sold antidepressants. I sold antipsychotics. I sold um, uh, anti-seizure drugs. Um, I sold a whole plethora of medications and did very well. Um, you know, my, the biggest mistake I made, well, probably not the biggest, but one of the biggest mistakes I made was getting involved in opioids in the first place. You know, at the first, at the company where I was first exposed to opioids, I was originally brought on board to sell a drug for, uh, obstructive sleep apnea and narcolepsy. And I loved it. And I was doing great because I was selling to psychiatrists mainly. And my social work background kind of led me to be able to have a conversation with a psychiatrist and understood kind of psychotropics and excessive daytime sleepiness and how it could be uh, misconstrued as depression. So we had good conversations uh, and things were well and I was happy and I was doing very well. The company decided they made a decision to cut the sales force in two and they actually offered me a promotion. 
the promotion was to sell on the pain side of the company as opposed to the side that I was initially brought on board with, which was the neuroscience side. And so, of course, I was offered a promotion and said, yeah, I'm like, this isn't really my cup of tea, pain management. I really don't know anything about it, but I'll learn it and I'll do it and I'll be successful. And uh, I went on to be successful. And then I got out of the industry. I actually got into the sleep diagnostic business and uh, worked as a director of develop, uh, business development for many years, was out of pharmaceuticals because I really didn't love the industry at that point in my life. And I got a call from someone at Insys because they were basically bringing on what we call a Me Too drug. It's basically a drug that's almost identical to what I sold back in the day, you know, with that pain management company. Uh, with just a different mechanism of action, instead of putting a tablet between your cheek and gum, you're spraying it underneath your tongue. And they called me because they knew I was successful and, and offered me a job. Um, and the money was too too good, and the job was the title was uh, substantially better than your previous one. Um, so, oddly enough, while I was working at the sleep company, right around that time, Medicare had cut the reimbursement rates of uh, sleep reimbursement tremendously. So the owner of my company told me that I was going to be taking a pay cut. So when I was offered that position, I went back to him and said, what do you think? And he said, I think you do both. And that way you make ends meet and, and everything works out. I don't have a problem with it. I know you can continue to do the job. So I actually took I took the job at Insys in addition to the job I was currently working. Uh, the money at Insys originally that was offered to me wasn't so great. I was just a manager um, making decent money, but the two jobs together was good. And I was working hard and I had so much success at Insys within a period of three months. They then offered me a promotion to be the vice president of sales. Once I accepted that position, obviously I resigned from the sleep diagnostic business. I couldn't do it. And it, it wasn't even logistically possible because I was working in South Florida and I had to move to uh, Arizona to be in the corporate office. Obviously, as a VP, they want you, you know, at the headquarters, uh, which was another disaster. My whole career, I always said I would never work in the corporate office. You know, it's all about um, it's all about the visual. Right. It's all about what time is your car there in the morning? What time does your car leave at night? You know, all the nonsense and all the crap that I never wanted to have anything to do with. The worst parts of corporate America. like <laughs> Yeah, but the title, my ego couldn't deny the title. Vice president of sales, head of sales. I'm like, okay, I got to do this. And that was, uh, again, another situation where my ego got in the way because I would have been better off staying where I was just being a manager and working a sleep job and would have had a much better life. Was that uh, Cephalon? Was that a different company? The company where I initially sold the yeah. pain meds? Yeah, that no, was no. Cephalon. Oh. That was Cephalon. Okay. But Cephalon never had any problems with uh, regulators and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. No, they had they had plenty of problems. They had they had the problems that every pain management company has where they fit, where they pay hundreds of millions of dollars in civil fines. Um, I think they paid well over $300 million. Um, they were in hot water till they're still in hot water. Teva took over the company and they're still dealing with lawsuits. The difference is, or the caveat is that there were no, never any criminal sanctions. Right. Um, and that's very similar to almost every pain management company in the industry. Insys was from, to the best of my knowledge, the first company and only company where people were um, sought after criminally and actually, you know, ended up, to be indicted and go to prison. 
Uh, the th- wasn't there also three people from Purdue Pharma or is that – am I wrong? I don't believe anybody went to prison from Purdue. I'm almost 99% sure. I think they – I know originally they pled guilty to misdemeanors. I don't even think felonies came into play. Um, I know they paid a ton of civil fe- uh, civil uh, penalties, you know, went bankrupt. Um, but the end, in the end of the day, uh, they made a ton of money. And came out smelling like a rose. I mean, you know, the media has exposed their wrongdoing. And there's plenty of people who are disgusted and, you know, have nothing but hatred towards the Sackler family. But as a general statement, you know, they really came out untouched and unscathed. Right. Which is crazy. So why, why, what makes your company so special? I guess that <laughs> you got charged with criminalities. Well, I mean, to be clear, you know, we deserved everything we got. You know, we were a hundred percent. Yeah, not implying that. Just, a, yeah. I just meant that more sense. Like, why, why did right. they do that with Purdue, which was much earlier and had a much bigger impact on society and opioids in general? No question about it. I mean, you can't compare the notoriety and the dollars, you know, with say OxyContin to you know what we had at Insys. You know, we're just like a little blip on the radar, but. Uh, For one, I mean, we were the number one IPO in the country in 2013. You know, be careful what you wish for. We certainly didn't need that kind of attention in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Two, um, we did not have a compliance department in place, you know, for the majority of the time that we worked, uh, which is not that unusual for very small companies, small biotech companies. They typically come to market and want to make some money and then they'll start to put in the other pieces of the puzzle that, that need to be there which is a huge mistake. You know, I would recommend to any company that from day one, you should have a compliance department in place. You know, I would have bitched and moaned that they had a compliance department. But in the end of the day, that compliance department without a question would have prevented me from going too far and kept me, you know, from ending up doing time in prison. Um, you know, the owner of the company, uh, talk about ego, never met a man with a bigger ego than that. And um, he just just didn't feel that he needed to spend money on compliance and lawyers and so forth to, to safe, uh, safeguard, you know, the practices. That it was, yeah. And um, it wasn't until, you know, uh, there was a whistleblower and we were being investigated by the DOJ that he you know, eventually started to bring in outside counsel. But in this situation, it was way too little too late. Uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, with the amount of money they were making, they were not investing in such a, crucial part it's like having a really nice apartment but no luck you know right we had we literally when i joined the company we had a human resources manager or maybe her title was human resources director and she didn't even have a master's in um in in human resources yet you know i think it was like a year and a half later that she obtained her master's i mean we were we were running lean and mean and guys like me where if you give me a rope to hang myself, like I'll do it. Meaning like, I'm just going to run with it. And I was running full speed and no one was stopping me. You know, in fact, no matter how well we did, no matter how many prescriptions we generated, no matter how many dollars we made, it was never enough. It was like more, 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 literally every day the numbers were scrutinized. And if the numbers went down, even the, the slightest amount, there was hell to pay at the meeting at 830 in the morning. So, um, it wasn't like, hey, you know, we have a schedule two opioid here. Let's 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 take a, a step back. Let's assess what's going on. Make sure we're being um, 
you know, responsible. Yeah, yeah, responsible, ethical. And no, those conversations never came up. It was just about dollars, dollars, dollars. And, you know, for a guy like me who grew up in a house of sales and then watched every sales movie you could possibly imagine, I'm just thinking, let's go. You know, the, it's green. The, the light is green. Okay, look, we, we keep going. You know, I did have other people in the company that were in different roles that kind of looked at me sometimes and said, yeah, you're doing great, but maybe you should slow down a little bit, you know, but those weren't the people that I was reporting to, right? Those weren't the decision makers. So I always made sure that I did what I was supposed to do as it pertains to the decision makers. Um, and again, that's something I've learned. And that's something that I talk about on podcasts. And when I talk to universities and so forth, that just because you have a boss and they're a decision maker doesn't mean they're right. They're making the right decision on your behalf. And ultimately you're responsible for your own decision. And if you can't make the decision that you think is right, then you, you know, you got to take the high road and move on. It's easier said than done. I didn't do it. That's for sure. That's for sure. I mean, it would have meant me walking away from tons of money, not to mention every other benefit that, you know, was given me. And I, I wasn't strong enough and didn't have uh, enough of a moral compass to make that, 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 that manly decision to walk away. How did you excel so quickly in those, you know, five, six months here or whatever it was, you know, you accelerated your career so much, obviously being a good salesman, but what's like the, the big secret? What's the, the one thing that say 99% of people in your area do not have that you possess, do you believe? Well, I mean, you have to be able to read your customer. Like, you know, within two to three minutes of having an initial conversation, you have to be able to size them up and understand what it is that makes them tick. And if you can't do that, you're going to lose them and, and you're done. Like you don't get another opportunity to get in front of them. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, it takes time. Uh, meaning once you size them up and figure out what makes them tick, then you got to tick them. You're right. You got to they got to tick every day over and over for years. By the time I took that job. By the time I took that job at Insys, I had relationships with physicians, you know, all over the country. Um, so I already knew what made them tick. And, you know, now it was just basically putting my team in place because I couldn't do it all on my own. So I put together a very uh, specific team that possessed, you know, very, um, very, you know, identical traits, skills and characteristics that could help carry out you know, this, this um, endeavor that we were trying to embark on. Um, I had a phenomenal guy, a phenomenal group of salespeople as far as my managers and directors, um, you know, people would, you know, sigh and say, Oh yeah, you had a phenomenal team. Look where they got you. Look what they did. You know, these guys are horrible. Um, in hindsight, you know, you can't argue with the results. The results are disastrous and they're, they're, they're horrid. Um, but, you know, pertaining to your question around sales, Sales is so much about the with them, you know, what's in it for me? What can you do for me? And you have to be able to find a way to provide to these people because no one in this world does anything for nothing. Um, I mean, I'll backtrack on that. I found some really good hearted people that do. And those are the people that you want to surround yourself with because those are the people that really care about you and, and society. But as a general statement, especially in the world of sales, when you're knocking on someone's door un, uninvited and you're intruding on them in the middle of their workday where they're trying to make a living, they're thinking either A, you're going to cost me money by taking up my time and taking me away from patients, or B, you're going to make me money by providing me something tangible. 
And if you can't provide something, you know, of some sort on some level, then you, there's nothing there for you. Um, but, you know, it's the art of persuasion. I mean, passion. You have to exude every message with a level of passion that's unprecedented, that's unsurpassed by anybody else. Any interview I've ever gone on, you know, even when I haven't been given the job, people have told me, listen, you're not qualified. But I will tell you this. You're the most passionate man I've ever come across the table with. Um, and you're selling yourself as the the product. You're the you might not know everything, but you're you're selling yourself as the person that could potentially figure out everything. Yeah, you the product is always secondary. You're the right. You're the pro, you're the sale. You don't sell yourself, you don't get an opportunity to sell your product. Nobody cares about the product. They want to make sure that they're listening to somebody that's worth their time. Um, and if if you can't buy their time, I always say there's three elements in sales: time, access, and interest. A, will they give you the time to convey the message? B, can you access them? Meaning, can you walk in that side door, that back door that goes into their kitchen without going through the waiting room whenever you want an interest? Are they actually interested in what you're saying? They're not going to be interested in what you're saying if they're not interested in you. They're not going to give you the time if they don't believe that you're going to you know, be, be worthwhile of their time. And they're not going to give you access. Um, and you can't sell without time, access, and interest. I think it's also, uh, you know, the way you talk about something with not just passion, but with this. And I've seen it in most, I've seen it in other reviews. I've seen it in documentaries. Genuine, even when you're wrong, even when, you know, you've committed some terrible things, some mistakes. I don't know. Even talking right now, I feel like you do come from a genuine place, whether you've made mistakes or not. It's, you know, and forgiveness and all that stuff. That's not for me to decide, you know, that's for the world to decide, but it seems like you're genuine. And I think even in sales, probably a big factor in a sale. Yeah, I, I'm super genuine. I'm authentic. You know, I mean, even my girlfriend now, she's like, wow. She's like, you never sugarcoat anything. You just say it how it is. Yeah, and, I, and that's you know, a double-edged sword as well, in a way. Especially with a girlfriend, right? You know, how do I look to that? You know, I'm like, you know what? Right. Honestly, that's not the best dress for you, you know? Um, I mean, I have two daughters, you know, so, I, you know, I've learned – to, to be careful. Um, and you know, there's a lot of reasons why you want to be really careful about how you, how you speak to a female. You don't want to give them a complex or anything like that, but, but I'm genuine and people understand that what you see is what you get. I mean, you know, even when I sat down at the dinner table with a physician and proposed, you know, quid pro quo and basically said, listen, we're going to offer you speaker honorariums. Um, but we're going to expect you to write prescriptions. Um, in lieu of those honorariums, I would always preface the conversation by saying, listen, you know, we're going to have a conversation here. It may not, it may not come across right with you. You may be offset by it. You may be disgusted by it. I'll tell you what, the moment you feel uncomfortable, either A, you get up from the table or B, you tell me to get up from the table. I'll take care of the tab. You enjoy the rest of your meal. But may I proceed forward? So, you know, right away, it's like I lay it that, laid it out on the table. Um, and now, you know, I do these podcasts, I do interviews. I mean, it's for me, it's so clear and evident that it's it's extre- it's a challenge. It's extremely difficult to to carry this burden right on a daily basis. Um, and oftentimes I've asked myself, like, how am I going to do it? Like, you know, when I got indicted and I knew I was going to prison and then I knew I was coming out of prison, like, how am I going to face the music? You know, and, I live, live with myself. 
Yeah. How am I going to look myself in the mirror every day and get dressed and, and, and go to work, you know, and humble myself? And believe me, I, you got to humble yourself after you come out of prison because you're not getting the jobs that you were before. Um, but that's that's nothing compared to the patients and their caregivers and their loved ones and what they went through as a result of the part that we took in this this whole disaster. Um, but I have two daughters, you know, I have a 15 year old and a 21 year old. And, you know, thank God for them, because it's because of them that I get myself up every morning, shave, get dressed and go to work. Um, because have they seen some of the documentaries, some of like the the nastier things in your past, I guess? You know, it's interesting. Um, we never really talk about it. Um, I don't, I think they shy away. I know that, you know, they've searched me on the internet, but I don't really think that they've gotten into the weeds at all. Really? Um, hmm. Yeah. And I even, you know, I wrote a book, um, and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty candid and transparent about, about myself and my book and what I've went through and the things that I've done. And my daughter, my youngest one said, you know, dad, I should really read it. Well, I gave it to her and it's still sitting on the nightstand. She never opened it. And this was like six months ago. I just don't think that they think they're ready and that's okay. Um, and I don't know that they'll ever be ready because when they really dig and one day they will, um, I think they're just going to be knocked off their freaking chairs. Um, but what I do now and what I've always done is I try to build a stronger relationship every single day so that when that does happen, they'll know that there's a different side to their father. Um, and there is a different side to their father. You know, I, there, there is a personal side and there was a sales side, much like my dad. The difference is on my personal side, you know, my dad never hugged me, never kissed me. He really never even shook my hand. Uh, he would just give me a nod. You know, I tell my kids I love them every day. I give them a hug and a kiss, you know. So, um, you know, I, I, I have learned from my past, you know, what I want to do, what I don't want to do, and what I need to do, what I, and how I'm going to change moving forward. And, you know, this whole debacle with regards to uh, the INSYS, and the pain management is just, you know, another thing that I need to try and do my part to right those wrongs. Um, it's never going to be fixed. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's lives have been destroyed. Um, but for me, I, and, and you know, you, you started off the conversation at the beginning, like you want to learn more about pain management and I can talk to that. Sure. I have some experience there, but I still don't consider my ex myself an expert in that arena at all. Um, you know, I would never really go out and start speaking on pain management. What I do is I speak to young people, college educated, graduate school, or people just getting out. I talk to them about this instinct that many people have where when they're in school, they, they want to come out and they want to take over the world, you know, right. and they, they think that they can, they just want to make millions and millions of dollars at, at any cost. And I try to help them understand that that doesn't bring happiness, you know, and, and, and there's oftentimes there's no balance with that. And, you know, family and, and friends and, you know, in hobbies integrated with work, you know, that you should work to live, not live to work. And for many years, I lived to work, um, which is one of the main reasons why, you know, my 22 year old, 22 year marriage ended up in divorce which, you know, to this day is extremely difficult for me because, you know, even with all the bad things I've done, I never wanted to see my family torn apart. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be able to be at the dinner table with my, with my wife and kids. I wanted to sit there as a family. We can't do those things anymore. Um, but, you know, that's just another 
result of the the mistakes that I made. And you, you know, you there's no question in this world that you have to pay for your mistakes. You know, you will pay. Um, it may take a lot longer than maybe you might think or anticipate, or you may be one of those people who thinks that you'll never pay. But you know, based on my own experience, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that you know what, what goes around comes around. I, I guess I should be a little bit more clear. I am interested in, in pain management. I am interested in the Sacklers. I am interested in, in, in that world. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, but uh, more so I'm interested in the human journey from any perspective, uh, unique perspective that I get uh, from. So uh, I've, tried to, I've strived to get interesting people from all sorts of backgrounds, people yeah. that are UFC fighters, people that have done time in prison, people that are authors, journals, comedians. I've kind of just enjoyed the the learning part. How does, okay, how does someone get into sales? Okay. How does someone start doing fishy things in sales? How do they get arrested? How, what happens after? Is there, is there a redemption story? Does, do people deserve second chances? More complex human conversations as opposed to, I don't really necessarily care about how these guys made $6 billion. I know what they did. <laughs> it's pretty <Right>. simple. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I want to know what the people are. What are they like? Like, like that, yeah. that way more interesting to me at least yeah i mean we could start talking about the receptors that are affected by opioids but i mean that's just (laughs) stuff i read in a book and you know i could i could regurgitate that like anybody you know that that doesn't really mean much and i don't think that the people who took these medications really care a whole lot what they know is is that there's use misuse abuse addiction and diversion and all of them uh are lend itself to what we call the slippery slope and as it pertains to me that's the, that's the problem, I think, that you have in sales, where you are heavily commissioned or bonus-based. You know, you're on that slippery slope, and you take a little step, you know, towards that line, and eventually over time, you take another step, another step, another step, because there's other people taking those steps, and they're competing with you. And you're looking at them from, you know, at the side, and you're looking at them from behind, and you're like, shit, I better take another, I better take another risk. Right. Right, because right? you're so competitive that you don't want somebody to catch you, especially when you tasted that success, especially when you've been number one. It's you don't want to lose that number one. I mean, talk to any professional athlete, talk to a tennis player who's ranked number one. They're hanging on like a thread, um, and it's like I'm not saying that somebody should look at me and hear me and say, "Oh, Alec, woe is me. I feel so bad for you that you were worried about losing your number one ranking." I'm not saying that. I'm saying that psychologically, it's almost a sickness. And this is what causes people to continue to take greater and greater risk, right? Because they just don't want to lose. And so that's something that we should be cognizant of. Like, why am I so interested? Why am I so insistent on being number one? Like, what does it even mean? Doesn't it mean much more to have been number one with your kids or, you know, the number one coach of your, your children's softball team? Or, you know, um, I mean, I'm in a sales job now. I can tell you, I've been doing this job two and a half years. I've never been number one. Um, I, there's there's 30 of us, and I'm, I like to be in the top five um, because I want to make money. You know, I still want to do well, um, and I want to work. I mean, these guys are giving me a job of, you know, a felon, and I don't want to waste their leads. Like, I want to be appreciative, and I want to have, I want to have some, um, you know, I want to feel good about what I'm doing, but I've never been number one. I have no problem with it. I usually am like, I'm usually around number three, even if I'm two, I'm like, I look at the board, I'm like, I'm two, I'm pushing a little too hard. Like I like to be like between three and five. Um, And even in my book, I I tell you, listen, if you want to be number one, like we can talk about it, we can have a one off, 
but that's not really what I'm aiming to teach people right now. I'm teaching, I want to teach you how to be in the top 10% and then be in the top 90 to 98% of every other aspect of your life. And I can tell you how to do that. Right. You know, what's interesting then uh, you bring that up. I do wonder what happens when someone does see that life and has the inverse reaction. So the reason I say that is because I don't, I didn't work in sales. I worked in engineering in corporate America uh, before I switched careers into this. And when I started working engineering, I was 23 years old, approaching a six figure salary in, in my small city. I was living in Canada. I was commuting to Michigan, working at automotive. And I saw the corporate world. I saw this uh, rat race. I saw the let's keep grinding. Let's get the next check. Let's impress the boss. Let's stay the extra hour. Let's stay the extra two hours. And it's always like, let's come in earlier. Who's going to get to work first? Who's going to get the boss coffee? And I had the complete opposite reaction. And I'm and I'm not, uh, I'm very competitive. I played soccer, basketball, tennis. I played every sport and usually we were top three in every sport I played in. And I, I don't, I don't know what the reaction is or why I had this reaction, but for me, it was like, no, 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 this is not what I want at all. This is horrendous. I want to make sure that I'm out at fucking four o'clock because that's what you pay me. You pay me till four. I leave at four. You pay me to come in at nine. I'm in at nine. Once I'm done, I'm out. And maybe it's just the a luck of the draw. Maybe it's upbringing. I don't know what it is because I know people around me who have similar upbringings who didn't have that. So I, I wonder what that actually is that triggers that let's run to this or let's run away from this reaction. Yeah, That's really interesting. I mean, personally, I think that it speaks to, you know, the true inner confidence that a person has. You know, I think that, you know, because you had so much success and you were an athlete and you started to really get a, uh, to know yourself that you were able to identify, you know, what was going to be good for you and what was not going to be good for you. You know, I, I consider myself weak, you know, that I basically decided to join the the rat race and compete in that rat race, like a fool every single day. I mean, I can't get those years back in my life that I lost and that I, you know, the time I missed from my kids, I was traveling, you know, three nights a week, every week for years, you know, and then I'd come home and, I should have been spending every waking second with my kids, but I was freaking exhausted, you know? And so, you know, I'd come home Friday and I'd sleep half the day on Saturday. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's truly stupidity, quite frankly. Um, and I'm not knocking these guys that are out there doing it, right? Um, I mean, every- There are some people that truly are happy with that lifestyle and the things that that lifestyle brings them. But I, I think it's also a reaction to how what how do I feel when I do get that promotion? I can buy that car. For me, it was like, I, I'm still going to the same rat cage. Why? Who cares how nice the car is? I'm still in this cubicle. I'm, I'm someone's bitch. You know, like, why does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, again, I, I think you're right. I think that um, ego is, is, is just a disaster because ego really equates to lack of self. It's really a lack of confidence and you're over, you're trying to overcompensate by driving a nice car and wearing a nice suit and living in a nice house and being able to tell right. people about it. the people that are truly confident with themselves don't give a shit. Um, and that's, I'm not there yet, but I'm I'm working feverishly on a daily basis to get there uh, through a, through an abundance of mechanisms. Um, you know, doing this podcast, hearing you speak, it's just another reminder of, you know, that's the type of guy that I want to be. And by the way, my job now, and I know they don't like it. Um, it's eight thirty to five thirty. I get there at eight thirty and five twenty nine. Yeah. I'm looking at the clock, and as soon as it hits three zero, I'm, <laughs> I'm out, out the door. And <laughs> right. I'm one of the oldest guys there. I'm forty nine, working with a bunch of kids between the age of twenty five and thirty five. 
and they're just they're staying till seven, eight, nine o'clock. Um, and they even open they're open on the weekends. I don't come in. And I talk to some of them. I don't want to like be the guy that says, hey, man, like you shouldn't work as much because the owners will get annoyed. But I do talk to some of them and I try to help them understand that you're going to burn yourself out. and You're, you're probably going to regret it. You do need to have some balance. And, you know, you're making good money. Like what more do you need? Yeah. yeah, Right. You need to understand like when, when, when is enough enough, you know, and you know, you bring up a really good point and I don't even know how I missed it to, to that, to this point, but you know, I was, I had a gambling problem, you know, back in the day, I haven't made a bet since February 22nd, 2013. Um, and I have no, no urges to bet whatsoever. Um, but again, when I was gambling, like, you know, Gamblers always lose in the end, but there yeah. were times when I was up. Right. And I never walked away. You couldn't cash out. No, yeah. because it was never enough, you know? Right. You know, and you go to the GA meetings and they're like, you could fill this whole room with cash and it still wouldn't be enough. And that's exactly right. So it just lends itself to my personality, my DNA. And I have to do something uh, just robust, like gigantic to, to turn that DNA upside down and just get, you know, like I got to reboot the whole thing. And by the way, going to prison helped me tremendously in that, in that matter, because, you know, all for me, prison, I'm not here to talk about the horror stories and the fights and all that. I'm here to tell you that for me, prison is, it's a long, it's, it's a long time out. It's a grueling time out. It's like when you're a little kid and your parents put you in your room or they put you in the quarter to think about what you did wrong. That's do that for do. two years. Yeah. That's what you do in prison. You think you, you sit in your bed because there ain't nowhere to go, nowhere to move. Or otherwise you're getting in somebody's way. You put your radio on, you maybe listen to some sports radio if the signal's okay. And you can, you know, you get the radio from commissary after a couple months and you just think, and you ruminate and you go over and over and over in your mind, like, what the hell did I do? And what, how could I be so freaking irresponsible and just stupid at the same time when all along you thought you were an intelligent guy, you know? Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I, 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 you know, I some of it is luck. To, to be perfectly honest, it's luck. I don't know why I reacted the way I reacted. I don't know why you reacted the way you reacted. I completely uh changed my life from what people wanted me to do to what I wanted to do. So, but I don't know what that reason, I don't know if it's the luck of the draw, if that could be, uh, let's say more institutionalized, if that could be trained, if that could be educated. Uh, I now live in Spain. I live in Europe. I don't necessarily see the greed and the rat race as much here, but then I see another element of the problems that they have here, which is like people are broke. <laughs> no other way to put it. People do not have uh, enough. They're they're just getting by. A lot of them. A lot of them my age. So there is uh, there's no there's no real solutions in in life. I think there's just trade offs. So if you can find a, a place where you're most comfortable, then stick to it and, and just continue doing that. And if and if people start forcing you or you start thinking like, okay, I I need to need to do this for the next dollar. I need to do this for the next car. Like it's you're you're losing. You've lost the battle. You're no longer in control. I mean, the car is going off the rail. Totally. I mean, I, this is that's how I end every talk with with these college students. I just tell them, listen, my takeaway message is this: when you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, if you're not thinking positive thoughts, you got to get to work. Because if you put yourself down and you say, I don't like the way I look, or I don't like, you know, how I'm doing in school, or I don't like the group of friends I have, and I, you know, you're you're putting yourself, you're lending yourself to a position where you're going to allow other people to influence you. And you're always going to be trying to measure up. 
If you can find a way to somehow have that self-confidence, you'll be able to do anything you want in life to make you happy. And you'll also be able to reject anyone who's trying to get you to do something that's counterproductive to what you. That's the real power. That's the real power. It's not money. It's the ability to be your own person. That's like the real, I think, message, I guess. hundred percent. And, you know, I think that the people that have come across me all my life always thought that I was just like self-confident, like happy, go lucky guy. And the fact of the matter is I wasn't, I was never happy because I always wanted more and I was always trying to impress somebody and I was always trying to get a promotion. Um, and that's just, you know, again, I'm not feeling bad for myself, but if you're one of those people, I do, I do have a heart for you. And I'd like to see you try to, you know, take the appropriate steps to, to flip that thing upside down. I want to know a little bit um, about what that lifestyle was like at the, at your peak, uh, peak in this terms of sales, not peak in terms of life. Uh, what was your like, I don't know, day to day, what was your week like? You said you were working a lot, uh, probably paying doctors a lucrative dinners and, and what was oh, the yeah. lifestyle like? I mean, money was not an issue. You know, I never worried about money. That was the one thing I didn't worry about. We, you know, my wife and I, like, we lived a nice life. We lived in a nice place. We drove nice cars. We, we always went out for super nice dinners, but we weren't travelers and we weren't people to go out and buy like crazy, like handbags and jewelry. So like we had plenty of money because we actually didn't spend that much as it pertains to, you know, or, you know, with the relevance of how much we were making. Um, so we never like my kids, like whatever they wanted, they got, which was a mistake. I love my kids to death. But, you know, I, I know now from dealing with them now after prison that they're spoiled, you know, and, and I can't even blame them. That that's my fault. Right. You know, I give them my credit card and they'd go downstairs and they'd go shopping and they'd buy food. And then, they'd you know, and I'm not talking about McDonald's. I'm talking about, you know, nice steak dinners, you know. Yeah. They wouldn't know the value of money from from they that had kind no of idea. They had yeah. no idea the value of money. I mean, these kids wanted to get their nails done the other day and it cost me a hundred bucks. And, you know, it, it bothered me, you know, and um, and and it bothered me because they didn't even think twice about it. Um, but again, um you know, my life was through the through through the week we worked um, and we did lavish meals every night. And, you know, I would meet doctors out and I would set them up at the club with bottle service and, you know, strip girls, clubs and whatever. Strip clubs and girls, whatever they wanted. I mean, nine times out of 10, I would just go and I'd be there around 10 p.m. and be out by 10, 1030 because I just set them up. And then I'd say, you guys have a great night. You know, there were times where I stayed, um, you know when you do this so many years, you, you kind of really get desensitized and bored with the whole thing. Um, so it's better just to go and just hook them up and take care of them, make sure they're, they're all ready and good to go. And then you follow up with the next day, follow up with them the next day, make sure they had a good time. Uh, but the dinners I always enjoyed, you know, for the most part, you know, we'd meet them at like seven thirty, and I do the dinner to 10 and then I'd set them up and be on my way home. Uh, but my wife joined me for most of the dinners. Um, even my kids, I brought my kids. I mean, I was the vice president of sales. What were they going to say? You know, um, and you know when we went to the dinners, I always brought if 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 my wife and kids didn't come, I always brought home food. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about McDonald's. I'm talking about steaks. I'm talking about bottles of wine. I'm talking about plates of sushi. Um, and then on the weekends, honestly, you know, um, we would me and my we. I'll speak for myself. You know, I was I was indulging. You know, I was you know I loved to smoke weed. I was doing coke. I was hanging out at the pool. I was going to hotels. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to make, it's hard to make good decisions with that kind of uh, stuff in your life. 
Yeah, yeah. It it's really the state is. of mind you're on on most of those things. Yeah, and you know, I really don't think it's good for anybody. You know, I, I know it wasn't good for me, but I really don't think it's good for anybody to be in that position because I think that, and, and you see this, right, with, with people who are famous, like movie stars and, 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 and musicians. Like, I just feel like if you have too much money and you have too much time, like, you get bored, you know, and, and, and you want to you wanna try to find something that, you know, satisfies you. You lose sight of everything and anything that's important in your life. Um, now, you know, I live for, you know, ordering a good pizza, not Domino's. I'm from New York. I like a good pizza. <laughs> All right, um, fair. And, and getting a good Netflix movie, you know. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but they're actually – there's a movie coming out on Netflix based on this story. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's called Pain Hustlers, and it's coming out October 27th on Netflix. Um, it's starring Chris. Are you Evans. in it? Are you? So like, I'm not in it. I did do a. <laughs> I did do. A, yeah, I did do a little consulting work, but a, a small amount. Cool. Um, but um, it's Emily Blunt and Chris Evans, and it's loosely based on the Insta story. It's, it's based on the book by Evan Hughes called the hard sell. And then I noticed he just rebranded the name, if that's the right verbiage. Uh, and he changed it to pain hustlers to mimic the movie. And, um, it's going to be really interesting for me. The, the, the characters are loosely based on people from Insta. So like Chris Evans, for example, he's not playing Alec Berlikoff. He's a fictional character and he's probably playing, um, a combination of say four or five people at Insys, right? Um, so, but you know, I have I'm nervous about it, you know, because my kids will watch it for sure, and they'll put two and two together. Yeah, and, you know, well, it'll be so, a glorification of your worst self. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's going to be. I, I mean, they're comparing it to like the Wolf of Wall Street. You know, I just read something that you know the movie, you know. It has full nudity, drug use, you know, uh, you know, bad language. You know, it's not going to be pretty um, and they don't want it to be pretty. They want it to be entertaining because it's a movie. Right. So, you know, they want to they want to put people in seats per se. Right. It's going to be on Netflix. But, um, you know, that causes me anxiety. You know, it's like this thing never ends. Um, but there's two things that I can do. Either one, I can run and hide and, and just, you know, put myself in a shell underneath the sand or I can face the music and continue to try to talk about, you know, my bad decisions. And again, not just the bad decisions about selling a schedule to opioid in a way that lacked uh, morals and integrity, but just bad decisions about the type of man that I wanted to become in life, you know, and, and, and how that led me down to, um, you know, the, the bottom, the rock bottom, literally. I mean, when you, when you're indicted and, and the federal government, you know, the feds come raiding your home, you know, guns blazing, yeah. you know, when and you Google your name and the first thing that comes up is a dot gov uh, website. That's not a good sign. <laughs> not a good sign. And, and, you know, you know, for a kid who grew up, you know, again, I'm, I'm not crying poverty or anything. Like I grew up in a, in a normal home with parents and there's no excuse, right? Like I went to prison with people, and I made friends with some really good people who did some really bad things. But th most of those people, I don't want to make excuses for them, but in many ways, it's like they didn't really have a choice. You know, they sold drugs and they did this, that, and the other. I had a choice, you know, and I made a bad choice, you know. And so it's so much harder for me to forgive myself than it is for me to forgive people like that. Right. 
And I guess while we're towards the end here, I hope I, you don't mind me holding you a bit longer. I had some questions about this industry in general. So first question, I mean, this is a stupid one, I feel, but I, I do feel like I have to ask it. What happens with all that money and all those fines um, that the, these big companies have to pay to the government? You know what? I, honestly, man, I really don't know. No, no. Um, I, I'm always wondered when I hear these big numbers and I see like, oh, we got him. We got him. Six billion dollars. Where is that? Six billion going. Yeah, I truly don't even know. Um, but I'll tell you this: like, for example, what really bothers me, specifically as it pertains to my situation at Insys, whatever money was paid, whatever fines and so forth. My understanding is, it didn't go to the patients or to their caregivers or family members or loved ones. They didn't get the money. You know, I, I've been following it, and I don't see it. You know, I see the money going to the government. And I'm not saying that the government won't put that money to good use. Um, I have no idea. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. It goes but, into a black hole and then we don't know. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I, I don't see the money going to the people who lost, you know, and suffered, um, which is interesting. But aren't they involved in the lawsuits as well or no? Or is that that's more civil? <laughs> well, How does that work? Weird. It's civil, but um, again, I, I don't know the particulars, but I, I, I just don't know of any cases where, uh, like, for example, you know, a whistleblower, right? They'll, they'll get paid or however, in this instance case, I don't even know if they're getting paid because the company went bankrupt. Um, but, you know, the, the whistleblowers would get paid and, and much more handsomely than the people or the patients who suffered. Um, I mean, you see this time and time again. It's just some odd things that go on. It's just um, one big game, and we're all pr- it, pretending it really like there's is. more to it than it is. <laughs> and I'm not knocking the government. I mean, because, you know, they they did something really significant, right? This is the first time that people selling an opioid in a way that is not appropriate, you know, were charged and, you know, found guilty. Um, and you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, bathwater as the expression goes, right? Because there was a lot of good people behind trying to stop what you're doing from, from, a, from a, just stopping the criminality of it and hurting more people. So, yeah, you know, the scary part is, is that, you know, it's a huge, it's huge conglomerate and it's going on every day as we speak. And, um, you know, the fentanyl disaster is worse now than it's ever been. You know, it's, it's everywhere, right? It's it's in marijuana. It's it's latest. It's it's in cocaine. People are dying every day. You know, I follow it because you know I've had a significant, it was huge in my life, and you know I tell my kids, you know, like I get it. Like people smoke pot and stuff, but you guys don't understand. It's not like when Daddy was smoking pot. Like this could have fentanyl in it. Like you could die. You know, and so um, it's just there's just so many messages to be conveyed. And I'm just one small little person trying to get something out. And why do I do it? I'm not even sure. Um, I can tell <laughs> it's like you. It's like a therapy session. I was going to say, I was just going to say, I can tell you it's therapeutic, though. Yeah. It is therapeutic because, you know, I think the others that, that were indicted and went to prison, I, to me, it seems like they've made a decision to just put this behind them and not talk about it and just forget about it. I, I can't speak for them, but that's what it looks like. Um, that won't work for me. Because I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy. I'm not one to run and hide. I'm one to face the music. You know, I had a guy, honestly, the other day at work, 
uh, we had an argument. It was it was getting very uh, combative because it's sales and it's it's just it's, sales sucks to be honest with you. But it's about all I can do right now. And we had an argument, and the guy actually spouted out and he said he said uh, get the fuck out of my office. You killed people, you know. And that was literally just last week. So you know, and the old me, you know, I would have like blown my temper and lost my head, and but I've got to understand that. This comes with the territory and it, and, and it may never go away, you know, and if it does go away, that's not good either, because I need to be reminded of that, at least from time to time, so that I never forget. And so that I continue to try, just try, you know, you got to make the effort. Most people don't make the effort. You know, I didn't make the effort. Uh, I can tell you, I do make the effort now. Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, tough, fair, whatever word you want to use. It's a burden that you carry uh, with you. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, and you, I, I, I yeah. Go ahead. I'm more also interested in maybe you, you, since you've worked in this space, is there a solution to stop this massive pharmaceutical monster that's now grown too big for its own good? Is there, What is the solution? Is there a way to stop this? What's the, what's the I, biggest I, way to do it? I actually do have an answer for that because I couldn't, I couldn't answer your last two questions. And um, I don't know if anyone will ever, ever move on it for obvious reasons, but the answer is really clear. Just pay a base salary, flat base salary. And don't throw every, every don't everyone throw in sales every, in pharmaceuticals in pharmaceuticals general yeah in pharmaceuticals because put a ceiling not, on the on the money yeah but just give them a base and, and don't threaten to fire them every day right just because you know if you're being if you have a base and you're being threatened to fire you're still going to push but if you have a base and you know if you do your job that it's secure because when you pay bonuses and commissions even if you are a man of great integrity shit gets ahead of you. It gets away from you in the heat of the moment. And you start to think, well, if I say this, it's not that bad. And I'm going to make an extra 15 grand this quarter. And by the way, my kid's going to college and this kid wants to go to camp and I got this bill to pay and my car pay. Like you start to rationalize and justify the little white lies, right? You cannot have that temptation. We are human beings you can have that temptation in other sales, right? Because sales are sales, I get it. But in pharmaceuticals, where the end result is the user and the user is the patient, there's no place in it. There's no place for it because it's not fair. You don't want to influence a prescriber to go to a specific medication over something other, something different. Because in the end of the day, the, the, the one who gets hurt is the patient and they have no say in it. Right. So you've got to take the bonus and the commissions out completely. Now, will that ever that's such happen? a tough problem? Yeah, because it's that's the whole ideology. That's the whole thing the society's built on in America. Capitalism and pleasing yeah. shareholders and doing better every quarter and making yeah. more money. So that's like, yeah. Yes. So like how, do, how that seems like that has to come from the top and work its way down. That's the only. Yeah. Uh, that, the top high is the top. <laughs> I mean, you could compromise and just say, hey, listen, any Schedule two medication, so any opioids, any benzodiazepines, uh, anything, uh, amphetamines like, um, you know, uh, Adderall, Ritalin, anything scheduled, right? Because at least we can say, well, that's a little bit more serious. It's addictive. It, you know, it, it has street value. It can be abused. Maybe start there and say any Schedule twos, we're going straight commission. No, I'm sorry, straight salary. No bonus, no commission. And then if you're selling like cholesterol lowering agents or antihypertensives or atypical antipsychotics or depression making, maybe you still leave it in place. But I'm just saying with these with these high risk drugs. Yeah, to, it to needs to be very difficult to obtain. Yeah, 
Yeah. 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 To incentivize I think people with crazy money. Right. When they're pushing schedule two medications, it, it doesn't match. The other thing is my, my only other suggestion is, you know, when I first started in pharmaceuticals at Eli Lilly, the majority of their, their reps, and at one point their only reps, were pharmacists. They had licenses. They had skin in the game. They had something to lose by being unethical. They had right. standards. Interesting. They had higher standards to live up to. What happened was the pharmaceutical companies got smart and they said, wait a second. This is less of a consultative role. This is more of a sales role. We will make more money if we hire an Alec Berlikoff over a farm D. Right. And, so again, it goes back to that. Let's make more money decision. Yeah. System. Yeah. So maybe we, maybe we revert back. We start to get some more credibility with our physicians and the actual consumers, the patients, and it holds some weight. I don't know. I'm sure there's many people that will listen to this who are in pharmaceuticals and say, this guy's fucking nuts. That it's never going to happen. But you asked me a question. In America. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can also look at other places in the world. My own personal experience here in Spain with trying to even get, I had a cough that was just nagging and I just needed a, a very light opioid to stop my mental, um, my, my own brain from telling me to cough when I didn't need to cough. I had my, my, my fever yeah, was you gone. You do a podcast and you couldn't do your job probably, right? I couldn't do my job, right? So yeah. I went to the doctor, fully educated on this topic, as you can imagine. And I said, hey, I know what I'm asking for. Please prescribe me something that has codeine in it or something right. that can just numb this sensation that I want to cough. Because I know there's no physical reason for me to cough. It's a psychological one. And numerous times I went to them and they still wouldn't prescribe it to me. So that's how difficult it is to get that here. Um, wow. Wow. So there are places in the world I think that do have an answer. Uh, I just think uh, although they do have that answer, it's tough to bring that answer to America. It's tough to like, it's mm -hmm. tough to tell America to do anything that anyone else is doing. Let's be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. So to yeah. solve an ideological, it's really an ideology problem. It's at its core. I think to, to say base salary, someone's going to stand up communism. Absolutely not. We don't do communism. So it's like right. you're battling so many different demons. Right. Yeah. No, listen, you're right. It's not a battle that I would want to fight. I mean, if I was head of sales and I tried to roll out a new plan where it was straight, straight salary, You'd I lose mean, all your, your best salespeople my immediately top, My top 20% would be out the door and I'd be stuck with the bottom 80 that don't produce any sales because sales is the 80-20 rule. 80% of your business comes from 20% of your right. rest. So the top 20 would walk out the door and they'd be like, oh, well, you still have 80%. Yeah, but I have 80% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> right, you know right. I mean? So yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't know, man. Yeah. It's, it's a tough topic. It's an interesting one. It's uh, therapeutic, I guess, um, in some ways. I really enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Is there yeah. a place people can find your book? Um, you can find my book on Amazon. It's called Selling Hard Lessons Learned. Um, you know, but I don't really get on podcasts to sell books. I mean, if you want my book, you can just email me at training at aberlikoff.com. Okay, cool. aberlikoff.com. I'll send you a free copy. Beautiful. Um, I'll leave that in the link below as well. Absolutely. Sounds good. I was a really enjoy this Thank conversation. Me too, man. Thanks. All right. Have a great Thanks one. so much. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.